Hey, it's the West Coast Gospel Hour, and tonight it's Saturday Apologetics. And we'll be joined by Ayo from Amitsu Study as we deliver part three of our apologetics series on Catholicism. That's next, here on the West Coast Gospel Hour. So stay tuned. It's going to be a great episode. Uh, just want to tell you, it is so good to have you all here. Uh, Ayo and I really uh, are excited about delivering this third apologetics on, on the faith. Uh, tonight, we're going to be discussing iconology. Uh, we're going to be discussing a little bit of uh, Kingdom Now theology. And we're going to go back and uh, talk about purgatory. We want to finish up what we finished off on the last time on purgatory and uh, why it's it's not biblical and uh, why we can say it's excluded from the canons. And that's going to be an interesting discussion tonight. So invite your friends, uh, get your notebook out, because this is really going to help you as you break down the uh, differences between Catholicism and your faith in Jesus Christ. And Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. That is what we'll be discussing uh, tonight in depth uh, as we discuss Catholicism Part 3. So it's going to be an exciting night. Uh, I think you're going to love this uh, episode of it. And uh, we're really looking forward to uh, uh, sharing good news for you. I'm just waiting for my partner Io to come on and uh, we'll get started. How's everyone doing tonight? I hope you're doing well and uh, that God is blessing you. Today was a great day. Uh, today the Lord really blessed me, uh, really surrounded me some, with some incredible Christians today. Um, that uh, just kind of encouraged me uh, in the Word of God, but also prayed for me. And uh, I tell you what, I could really feel uh, the Lord's hand on my life today. And I just wanted to tell you, it was, it was amazing. And I know so many of you are praying um, for what I'm going through right now. And uh, believe me, I, my mind is desiring to uh, get back to these Bible studies and talk about the Word of God and to share what is going on. And I think it's so important that we do that. Uh, as I discussed. All right, let me bring on my partner, Io, if he's here. Oh, he is not in yet. Well, we're going to get started then. And uh, I hope he's... Oh, there he is. There he is. All right, we'll bring him on. David, it's good to see you. And uh, Raf Shear's in the house. I'm going to bring... There he is. There you go. All right. Raf Shear's in the house. Hey, brother. <laughs> You're a little late tonight, huh? Just a little bit. Just a I was little surprised bit. when you said I'm not here. I'm like, I am here. <laughs> but yeah. Cognito, huh? Hiding. No. All right. Not, at all. not from you. All right. Well, it's going to be a great night. Um, we're discussing our, our third in the series on Catholicism on here on the Apologetic Saturday, uh, which we do every month, once a month. Um, why don't you lead us in prayer and we'll get started. Yeah, sure. Uh, Father, we just thank you for another opportunity to talk about Catholicism um, for the purpose, Lord, of just um, discussing these beliefs that aren't um, that don't rhyme with Scripture, Lord. We just pray that uh, as we go through this, maybe use this as an opportunity to equip fellow believers to understand the false doctrine uh, that permeates the Catholic Church that uh, that just ensnares uh, uh, Catholics and, and different people, Lord. So we just pray this is a, can be used as a tool. And that it can be used to just bring people who 
uh, do espouse these beliefs to a, a true understanding of what your word says, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Um, we, we've got a lot to discuss tonight, and this is going to be a back and forth conversation between Io and I um, uh, tonight as we discuss. Um, we're going to look at purgatory, uh, then we're going to discuss iconology, uh, and then we're going to, if we have time, we're going to break down kingdom now theology of Catholicism um, and really delve into that. Um, but these are all reasons why we're not Catholics. And, um, and I think this, this is important. And, and you may go, well, I don't really care. I'm not Catholic. Well, you should know these things because they're going to strengthen your own faith as to why your faith is sound. When you're out witnessing to a Catholic, sharing the faith with a Catholic, you're going to know what their background is. You're going to know where their weaknesses are in their faith. And this is real important. Yeah, definitely agree with that. So, yeah, let's get started. All right. Um, yeah. First First thing is uh, purgatory, um, and um, I, I want to kind of back swing to something we said um, the last time we were gathered together, and that is we argued that um, it's not found in the scripture at all, and we got a little bit of blowback from that. Uh, the argument was, well, wait a moment. That's because you don't have certain books of the Bible in your canon, right? And that was the blowback, and that sounds great. It sounds like a legitimate argument, but it's actually not. And I want to bring this up, why it's not an argument. And, and this is real important. The Catholic Church and the Orthodox Eastern Churches, the Byzantine Catholics, uh, the, the Roman Catholics, um, the, the Orthodox Church, they claim that their theology comes from the Orthodox of the early church fathers, and they've carried that on, and that's why they believe what they believe. This is not the case. And I want to I make this really, really clear. This is not the case. At the Council of Carthage in 397 AD, the canon was established. And it was the 27 books of the New Testament and the 39 books of the Old Testament. 397 AD. That's when the canon was established. The Apocrypha was included, but... This is what the council stated very clearly. It was not inspired by God, and it was not scripture. That it was there for historical review or for context, but it was not to be understood as inspirational of God, nor was it scripture. And that, was the, that is what they absolutely stated about the Apocrypha. Uh, and this was real important when you're going through the readings of the, the Council of Carthage in 397. That was the important statement they wanted everyone to know. Look, you can have the, the books of Apocrypha. Uh, you can look through them. Uh, they're going to be nice books, but they're historical. You're only look at them in context, but they're not inspired books by God, nor are they to be viewed in, in the holiness of Scripture. Um, and this is important because we have to then ask the question, well, how do we know that something is in the canon is canonized? How do we know it's from God? Well, some of the questions you ask was, this was the criteria for the Council of Carthage. Was the book written by a prophet of God? Was the writer um, authenticated by miracles to confirm his message? Does the book tell the truth about God with no falsehood or contradiction? Does the book... Uh, 
evidence a divine capacity to transform lives? Was the book accepted as God's word by the people to whom it was delivered? In the time, was it considered, hey, this, is, this was delivered by God. This was God's word at the time. Books like the Maccabees were not. In fact, they were considered historical books. How do we know this? Well, there was a Jew around the time of 15 BC. His name was Philo. And he also, who was a philosopher Jew, he also said the Jews did not accept the Apocrypha as inspired by God. Yep. So this is Jewish tradition, 15 BC, all the way through. And this is important to understand. Even the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of these books were not considered uh, uh, canon. And the Apocrypha was part of that. So we look at it and we go, okay, this is why we have at the Church Council of Carthage in 397, the established canon, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. They established it because they went through it methodically and asked these deep questions. Was it considered at the time a, uh, a book as God's word for the people that it was first delivered to? Now, I, I want everyone to understand it because when I said that purgatory is not in the scripture, I was absolutely correct. According to the Council of uh, Carthage in 397 AD. And for the Catholic Church to add that now to scripture, or the Orthodox Church to add that now to scripture, or the Byzantine Catholics to add that to scripture, they are contradicting what they claim is orthodoxy. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point because I, I did remember getting those messages uh, concerning our last, um, you know, uh, message we did on, and we only touched on purgatory a bit and we'll flesh it out um, for this uh, IG Live. But yeah, that was one of the claims he said that, hey, it was in the book of Maccabees, which to me, I was like, well, that's not even a, a argument you can make because that's from the Apocrypha, right? If you were to say, hey, you can find this in the book of Matthew, chapter verse, you know, we can have that discussion, but you can't find it in the 66 books. Um, that, you know, most believers consider canon. So, yeah, so that's not even an argument, just like you said. And, and by the way, I mentioned one Jew, Philo, but there were Jews throughout the period that did not consider the Book of Maccabees or the Apocrypha as part of canon. Uh, and that was the common idea of the time. And that carried all the way on to 397 AD when they put the canon together. Yeah, so that's a good start to just address um, that. And we'll get into uh, purgatory quickly. But before that, I just want to do a quick review because, you know, a month is a long period of time between these episodes. So we just want to make sure we just do a brief review, just remind you guys what we've done. Um, we touched so far on the Catholic belief on Scripture, uh, that they reject the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Uh, we uh, checked on their belief on salvation, that it's not the belief that, you know, once they've always saved, rather, it's not a belief that, um, you're only saved by faith, that you have to do something there. So they also include baptismal regeneration. Um, they also include the sacraments and things like that in there. We touched on the belief on the communion, transubstantiation, right? That the communion, the Eucharist, actually has the presence of Christ's body, literal body, literal blood. Uh, we looked at what they believe in terms of Mary. They believe she's a co-redemptress, essentially on, on par with Jesus Christ in terms of salvation. Uh, that she's the queen of heaven, she's a perpetual virgin, all of these things. And, and then last time we focused on extensively the, uh, the Marian apparitions. And we specifically looked at uh, Our Lady of Fatima 
and the message there and just showed that how um, that lady at Fatima had that, that message so-called had nothing to do with the gospel, had nothing to do with believing in Christ or anything like that, but it had to do with people believing in the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And we looked at 2 Corinthians 11, 14, 15, that said that, hey, for Satan himself transformed himself into an angel of light. Uh, therefore, it shouldn't be surprising when his agents also do the same, right? So we shouldn't be surprised when these kind of apparitions appear with these so-called messages. Um, it's ultimately demonic is what we said that was. And then we also looked at the belief um, on prayer. So we looked at the rosary, novena, uh, the prayers that they pray, which are kind of ritualistic, which Jesus uh, talked about. Um, during his period of time, um, that we shouldn't be praying like the the pagans, right? Who pray these vain prayers, repetitious prayers, but we should truly seek the Lord in prayer. Um, so that was a super quick uh, summary of what we've covered thus far. If you want to look back through, listen back to those previous episodes, you can check it out on RIGTV, or you can just um, listen to podcasts as well for Catholicism Part 1, Catholicism Part 2. So Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so where where are we on purgatory right now? What, what did you want to share with us? Yeah, I'll just, I mean, I just go through it and, you know, we'll have this conversation because I forgot what we, I think we just briefly touched on last time that, you know, Catholics believe in this intermediary state, um, but we didn't really delve in too deeply. And I do have some, um, you know, quotes from the Catholicism of the Catholic Church concerning their views on Catholicism. So I'm going to really dive into that because that's what we've been doing. We've been you know, showing you guys what the Catholic Church actually believe on these issues. Um, so that's what we're going to do here as well. Um, so quick article concerning uh, this view from God Questions. What are the differences between Catholics and Protestants? Um, they said, in terms of purgatory, they said both believe that unbelievers will spend eternity in hell. So both Protestants, Catholics, we believe in hell, we believe in heaven. That's it's great. That's fine. But there are significant differences about what happens to believers from their church traditions and their reliance on non-canonical books, just as we went through, right? The Book of Maccabees. They say, hey, you, you're, yeah, sure, you're claiming that purgatory is in the Bible, but you haven't, you know, looked in the Book of Maccabees, which is in their scripture, but it's not part of the canon, though. So they developed this doctrine of purgatory through the traditions and through these non-canonical books. Okay, but, so according... Yeah, I just wanted to say why this is a really bad argument that they're making. This is exactly what the Mormons claim about the Book of Mormon. Well, it's not in your Bible, but it's in ours. It's in mm. our Book of Mormon. And how do you know what it's true? How do you know that the Book of Mormon is, is true or false, right? Um, and you use the same criteria, right? Does it contradict God? Does it, does it uh, derive God as not being truthful? Does it show falsehoods or contradiction to the character of God, right? And that's one of the reasons why we can easily dismiss uh, the Book of Mormons because there's a lot of bizarre stuff that totally contradicts Scripture uh, in there and also contradicts the very nature and character of God, a loving God who sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. So we can look at it. Same thing with what that's exactly the same argument that the, the Roman Catholics, the Orthodox, the Byzantine Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox churches are trying to claim. And I wanted to just bring that up real quick to you. Yeah, yeah, great point there. Um, so again, guys, from the Catholic source here, from according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, a purgatory is a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who depart in this life in God's grace are not entirely free from venial faults or have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgressions. So in summation, um, again, 
like uh, purgatory is a place when the believer, they're, they're talking to people that have been saved here. Uh, once you depart from this life, you enter this intermediary state where you essentially have to kind of pay for extra sins. So extra sins or extra faults, uh, extra transgressions that maybe haven't been paid fully in this life will be paid off fully in purgatory. And once you've been kind of paid that off, fully cleansed, whether, whatever their definition is, then you can go to heaven. So it's not hell. It's not the person is damned. It's just that extra cleansing takes place here for them to remove those other sins, other faults, transgressions, and then they can go to heaven fully cleansed. Um, so to summarize, uh, in Catholic theology, purgatory is a place that Christian soul goes to after death um, to cleanse their sins. Uh, other, on, on the other hand, Protestants believe that because we are justified by faith in Christ alone and that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, when we die, we'll go straight to heaven to be in the presence of the Lord. So those are the differences there. Protestants do not believe that we, after death, there's something else we have to pay for. We believe Christ paid for it once and for all, just as scripture says, and we'll go over that. Um, but Catholics, for some reason, believe that, well, no, you know, Jesus Christ maybe paid for 90%, 95 possibly on a good day, uh, but we still have to put in that extra work for that 5% or that 10% that's left. Um, and that really um, begins adding a problem in terms of Christ's sufficiency, a sufficient work, right? That means it's not sufficient anymore. Uh, that means that if you have to do something, uh, then that's a problem to that as well. So uh, those yeah. are problems, and, problems here. And who is it that goes straight to heaven? Only the saints as dictated by the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. So you have to be sainted, right, by the Catholic Church. Um, and that's a, that's, a major, that's a major issue um, uh, in, in this discussion because um, that means you and I are going to go to purgatory right? Um, and we're going to find out later that I don't even get to go to purgatory according to Catholic doctrine, because um, we're going we're gonna to read that in a moment. But uh, it, it, it's sad, you know, and um, it's, it's a major, major problem, right? So I'm glad that Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, mm -hmm. right? Yep. For the believing Christian whose faith is in Christ, I, Paul, declared me a saint, right? He said, you are a saint. Um, what is a saint? Someone who, who believes in Jesus Christ, in the blood of Jesus, has been saved by that blood, believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Yeah. They will never be put to shame, according to Romans uh, 10, 8 through 11. Never be put to shame. So there is no working out in heaven or in purgatory your salvation. Mm -hmm. Paul says to work out your uh, salvation here with fear and trembling, right? Mm -hmm. Not up there, because yeah. up there you're with the Lord, right? Exactly, exactly. And, you and then you know, with the with the working out of our salvation too, that doesn't even mean um, that we can somehow still pay ten percent of whatever Christ did, right? That that still doesn't mean because we're commanded to work our salvation, which is sanctification, by the way. We should be sanctified. We should be drawing close to Christ. We should be striving to be more and more like Christ. Every day, that's the sanctification process. That's what it means to work out our salvation. Um, that, therefore, does not mean that we somehow have to, you know, pay a part of the bill in terms of salvation or we can do something to further earn our way to heaven or something like that. So that's definitely not what it means either. Yes. And, and this is Seth brings up a great uh, verse. Hi, Seth. Thank you very much. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus died on the cross for our purification. And that's a great point, you know. 
one one death on the cross by Christ, and we are purified. It's not in purgatory. Yeah, yeah. It's not extra purification or, or a process that, you know, we have to put in work ourselves or anything like that. So that's a great point. Um, and, so, and by the way, I'm going to say this. This mm -hmm. is what you're going to notice is that the Catholics stop believing the scripture. They start believing church doctrine. They fall away from believing the scripture. Because if you look at scripture, there are numerous verses that says we're saved by Christ. We're justified by Christ. We're, like this verse in Hebrews 1, 3, uh, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. What Paul said, we who remain will be caught up. We will be changed in an instant. There is no... The dead in Christ will rise first. There is no purification. It's it's instant and it's absolute. Yeah. Yeah. No. Let, me, you know, let me just read, you know, Hebrews verses one to four quick, just so we all understand, you know, the power of this verse and what it truly means um, as we contrast it with purgatory. So Hebrews one, one to four, God who at very time various times and in various places, spoken times past the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, here he comes, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has been as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So verse three is clear that he had by himself purged our sins. So that strikes two blows, which is one, Christ purged all our sins. So all our sins are purged, not 90%, not 99.999, 99.9999, you know, add as many nines as you want. He purged 100% of it. So that means there's nothing else for us to do. And he did it himself. So that means that we aren't even part of that process, right? So that strikes two blows to this idea of purgatory that somehow our sins need to be purified once more. Well, we can't do that because Christ did it all. And we're not even in the process of that purification because Christ did it himself. Um, so, oh, and by the way, that strikes one three is perfect for that. What was and, that? And that strikes down Maryology, the, the yeah. belief Mary can forgive sins mm -hmm. um, and purge us from our sins. She can't. Yep. Yeah, it's Christ himself. Yeah, so just more quotes from... Um, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church here concerning their view of purgatory, again, from a Catholic source. Uh, so this is from one, uh, 1031, Catechism of the Catholic Church. The Church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. Again, they don't view purgatory as hell. Those are two different things. This purification is for the saved in their belief. Uh, the church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain text scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. And then this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1475. Uh, in the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home, those who are expatiating their sins in purgatory, and those who are still pilgrims on earth. Between them, there is too an abundant exchange of all good things. And this wonderful exchange, the holiness of one profits others, well beyond harm, well beyond the harm that the sin of one could cause others. Thus, recourse to the communion of saints lets the contrite sinner be more promptly and efficaciously purified, punished for sin. 
So that's a lot there. But that second quote I just quoted not only says that believers who need their sins purified end up in purgatory, it also says there's a link between believers who are in heaven with believers who are in purgatory and believers who are on this earth right now. And because that link exists, somehow we can offer some recourse to these people in purgatory so that their purification essentially can happen more promptly, can happen faster at a half, faster rate, right? And they call it a wonderful exchange, an abundant exchange of all good things, that this link profits these, these uh, characters here. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a very strange link. And it goes back to what we were kind of talking about earlier, or in our last episode concerning prayer, right? Um, that somehow we can pray to the saints in heaven for our sins, maybe the sins of those who have departed, um, and that somehow that benefits us in some way, whereas the Bible says nothing concerning that. Um, so that's also part of this view of purgatory as well, that somehow we can do something to help our departed loved ones to exit out of this purgatory state faster. And that's where things like indulgences come into place, right? How the Catholic Church used indulgences in the past, where they'd say, hey, you know, you do this thing or purchase uh, some money for this indulgence, whatever, for sins, and your departed family member who had these sins can get out of purgatory and go to heaven. Um, so we know about the history of the Catholic Church in that regard as well, right? Yeah, uh, indulgences are, is another whole topic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> probably talk about that for a week. Because that, how can someone pay money to be forgiven by God? Where is that found in Scripture? It, it's, it's not. That, and this is such an evil thing that the Catholic Church is, is guilty of. It, it is the reason, it's one of the major reasons for the 95 Thesis that Luther posted on the door. Look, there, this was a serious crime of the Catholic Church. And uh, the Catholic Church has never repented of indulgences. They've never acknowledged, you know what, we sinned against God. Uh, this was not a good practice that we did. They, they've just put it by the wayside, but they've never repented. And if they had repented, they would have actually paid back everything that they stole uh, over the centuries. Uh, that's true repentance is to pay it back. So um, I, I, and that, that's another topic, and, um, but we're not going to cover that tonight. Um, keep going. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so here from Got Questions again, they, they just talk about this in a great way. They do a great job summarizing this beliefs and why it's not um, true. Um, and so that's why I want to include it here. And they also talk about um, a verse in scripture as to why the Catholics kind of have this view in scripture. So some Catholics will go to the, the actual canon, not like Maccabees or Apocrypha, to make their case. Uh, so God Questions talks about this in their article, What Does the Bible Say About Purgatory? Uh, they say the primary scriptural passage Catholics point to for evidence of purgatory is 1 Corinthians 3.15, which says, if it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Uh, this passage is using an illustration of things going through fire as a description of believers' works being judged. If our works are of good quality, gold, silver, costly stones, they'll pass through the fire unharmed, and we will be rewarded for them. If our works are poor quality, they'll be consumed by fire. The passage does not say, anything, does not say that believers will pass through the fire, but rather that believers' works pass through the fire. So essentially what God question is saying is that some Catholics will point to 1 Corinthians 3 and 15, where Paul talks about this judgment, which we, both Spawn and I, have talked about lots of times. We know it was the judgment, of, uh, the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat of Christ. 
where after the rapture, we'll stand before the Lord. He'll examine our life after we're saved. Look at our works. Did they, you know, were they, did they glorify him? Did they not glorify him? Look at our life on earth. Um, and depend on that, we'll either lose rewards or gain rewards. Um, so essentially, the argument that people try to use to go through the scripture isn't a good one because it has nothing to do with purgatory, nothing to do with purifying believers after death or an intermediate or state of any kind. All it's talking about is just the process, a future process for all believers that we'll have to go through to either gain rewards or lose rewards. So that's also an important thing. I want to highlight that too, because you might talk to a Catholic friend and they might point you to 1 Corinthians 3.15 to try to make this case. I know it's in scripture, it's right here, um, but in context, we understand it, it has nothing to do with purgatory, it's some intermediary state. And again, um, to try to make the claim that it does, well, we just read Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4, right? We just saw uh, that Christ, he took care of all our sins, purged all our sins by himself. So to make that claim would contradict what Hebrews said. And that's just Hebrews. I mean, we can go through scripture after scripture saying the same thing about how Christ died once and for all, took care of all our sins. It's, it's all done away with. There's nothing we can do about it, right? Um, so that, that case can't be made with 1 Corinthians 3, um, verse 15. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I agree with you on it. Plus, the book of Revelation backs up. So you have the congruency of scriptures regarding the Bema Seed, that it's talking about a, a purification. Um, and then you have a big problem. You have in heaven, during the tribulation, you have all the thousands of saints that have died that are in the presence of God, right? And they're crying out to the Lord. They're not crying out from purgatory. They're crying out in heaven to the Lord. And it, John sees them as a seed for the throne of God um, and that are robed and dressed. So, um, and this is a, a, a great thing because one of the things that we also have to remember is the scripture about the thief on the cross, right? He died after Jesus. Jesus was already dead. They had to break the legs and then, the, then they would die. Jesus was already dead when the Roman soldier came up to him. But remember what Jesus told the thief. And this day you will be with me in paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise. Right? Not tomorrow. Not in purgatory. He said paradise. Well, let me ask you a question. What did the thief on the cross do to achieve his sainthood? What, what acts, what miracle did he do to get his sainthood? What great performance did he do for Jesus? He believed. It was based on belief. Mm -hmm. So, therefore, that contradicts the whole idea that of sainthood had to be bestowed upon him in order for him to go to, to paradise. He was in paradise with Jesus that day. And if you don't believe that, then you don't believe Jesus. Yeah. And, you know, I was thinking, this popped in my head. This is totally off topic. But it also, um, this example of the thief on the cross, which is a great argument, by the way, for works-based salvation in general, no matter what religion comes to you just points a thief on the cross. It's also a great argument against what Catholics do, last rites, where uh, in like the Inquisitions and things like that, and I don't know how far in history it happened, but in terms of like when Catholics would be on their deathbed, essentially dying on the battlefield, they'd have these priests running around, giving, their, giving these people last rites so they can make it into heaven. So with that, I can just point the thief on the cross and be like, well, I don't see a priest running to the thief on the cross Give him his last rights to run to heaven. Jesus said, hey, you believe you'll be able to be in paradise this day, right? 
So that's just another thing I talked about. And I'm sure last rights is also a topic that, oh man, we could spend like <laughs> for, forever on, right? So there's right. so much to cover, yeah. And and that's the important thing was that the, the thief on the cross was saved instantly. He didn't need baptism. He didn't have to get off the cross, get baptized. He didn't have to get his communion. He was immediately saved by Jesus because that's the one, as we read from Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, he's the one who did it by himself. It is finished. All things were accomplished through him, right? For it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. And that's why the thief on the cross was saved, because of grace and faith in Christ. That's it. Yeah. Not by works, so that no man can boast. The thief didn't do anything to dazzle God, except be repentant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So just to kind of uh, wrap this up, but I still have a bit more on um, purgatory, but just a few more differences here. Again, getting this from God questions, they write, uh, one disturbing aspect of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, and, and I kind of highlighted this as well in terms of the understanding, the Catholic understanding of purgatory. Um, one disturbing aspect of the Catholic doctrine of purgatory is the belief that man can and must pay for his own sins. And again, we went to Hebrews 1 uh, to just refute that claim, right? Because we know Jesus Christ did it himself and paid for all sin. So there's nothing we can, even if we wanted to, even if I want to tell Jesus, I'm so grateful what you've done. I want to pay for some of my sins. I can't do it because Jesus did it himself, totally by himself. There's nothing for me to do. Um, so when we talk about purgatory, it shines the light away from Christ and what he did and shines light back on man and says, okay, cool. There's something I can do. There's some glory I can get out of this. And we know that there's no glory that we can get out of this, right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 makes it clear that we were saved by faith through grace um, so that no one can boast, right? It's not by works that any man can boast. Uh, so just continuing on this article, uh, this results in a low view of the sufficiency and efficiency of Christ's atonement on the cross. Simply put, the Roman Catholic view of salvation implies that Christ's atonement on the cross was insufficient payment for the sins of those who believe in him and that even a believer must pay for his own sins either through acts of penance or time of purgatory yet the bible teaches that it is christ's death alone that can satisfy or propitiate god's wrath against sinners our works of righteousness cannot add to what christ already accomplished isaiah is very clear on that they're but dirty rags um to god so even if purgatory did exist they wouldn't even satisfy the wrath of a holy and just God either way. So um, to say that we must all suffer our sins for our sins, to say that Jesus' suffering was insufficient, to say that we must atone for our sins by cleansing purgatory, is to deny the sufficiency of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. And here, just First John 2, 2, uh, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Um, so Jesus' death paid for all of our sins, right? And we, again, we can go through scripture after scripture, uh, verifying that, you know, backing that up. Um, but that's what scripture says. So there's nothing in scripture that points us to uh, some intermediary state like purgatory. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So the, the next thing that we've got tonight is iconology. And what is iconology? The veneration of icons. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit, what that means um, but before we do, I want to bring up another thing from the last time we met, um, and that was on Mariology when we discussed Mary um, full of grace. Um, I, I, I was incorrectly um, quoted 
when it said, you said translation, that there was no translation that says full of grace. No, I, I said the transmission. Um, and I, I went back and watched the video just to make sure I did say that. And I did say transmission uh, of the Greek text. And I'm absolutely correct on that. And I wanted to explain to people why, because I want to give more clarification to it. Perfect. In Luke one twenty eight, you have the phrase um, uh, that the Catholics have put in their Bible of Mary full of grace. But if you look at like translations today, and I am saying translations today, they have translated that as favored one. And here is why. And remember, I made the comparison between Luke one twenty eight and John one fourteen, where it says that Jesus is full of grace. The Greek words used, if you're going to go back to the to the text, the transmission, okay, the original Greek transmission, you have this. Um, sorry, my kids are a little loud upstairs. Um, you have this specific wording that is different from John 1.14, okay? Uh, and one in Luke 1.28, it basically says one who has bestowed grace. It's implying this in the Greek phrase, one who has bestowed grace. And in John 1.14, it is describing one who is the bestower of grace. So when... John is saying that Jesus is full of grace in John 1, 14. He is describing Jesus as the one who bestows grace. And in Luke, if you're looking at that phrase, the true definition there in the translation is one who has bestowed grace. So the correct terminology is absolutely correctly saying she's a favored one. Why? Because those who have been bestowed grace are favored by God, right? Um, and that's important to understand. Now, he did bring up and say, wait a moment, you know, in the translations, you have the Tyndale translation, you have the Wycliffe translation. Absolutely. It's, but it's incorrectly translated there. And we see that all the time in a older translation that we find out, well, this is what the word meant in that time. And we have better understanding of it. For example, in the King James Version Bible, and I love the King James Version. I, I study out the new King James Version Bible, but I love the KJV. We have the word Easter that appears in the book of Acts. They would have never used that terminology in the book of Acts because the word Easter was a pagan word that was developed 400 years later. So it would have never been in the book of Acts. It would have said Passover. So there are some times, and God bless the, the, the KJV translators, they made an error there that we now know is incorrect. But we don't change it. We leave it. Same thing is that we have to remind ourselves that the Wycliffe and Tyndall translations, they were heavily influenced by the Catholic Church. And these were one individual. Today, we have multiple scholars. Even the King James Version had multiple scholars working on the KJV, which is why it's one of the most accurate translations. Perfect? No, but very, very accurate. Um, and, uh, and, and, and you can always see that some of the scholars, the, the Bibles that are very inaccurate scholarly-wise, like the Message Bible, it's one. Oh. The Passion Bible, it's one. Oh, right? Inaccuracies, huge mm -hmm. inaccuracies. Um, so I, I just wanted to clarify that once again. One phrase means one who has bestowed grace. The other phrase in, in the Greek means one who is the bestower of grace, Jesus. Um, with that being said, that being said, we're going to now try to get into iconology and we this is going to be a big topic tonight 
Where I want to start at first is, once again, the orthodoxy of the church. The Catholics claim, the Byzantine uh, Catholics claim this also, the Roman, the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, they claim this also, that they are the guardians of orthodoxy in the church. There's a problem here, though. In the first uh, 500 years of the church, no one, no one argued for iconology, okay? And that is the veneration of icons, the worship of icons. And this is a big deal. Look, I just want to list some of the names for you of who condemned this practice, not only rejected it, but actually absolutely condemned it. They didn't want pictures. They didn't want statues. These were, were absolute arguments for it. And I'm going to listen to this. In fact, um, the, the, between 140 and 180, it was so implicitly understood that the rejection of divine images was absolutely, completely understood. And it was not only rejected, but condemned by people like this. Uh, Aristides of Athens, Justin the Martyr, one of the great apologetists, one of the first ones to be covered. Uh, Tetation, the Epistle of uh, Dionysus, um, Arthogenius of Athens. That, that's just to name a few of them right there that, that did this. But there was also, clearly understood, Tertullian condemned this. Origen condemned this. Uh, and this was continued in the third century. And then you get to the Cappadocian fathers of the fourth century. They also not only rejected all images and with clear awareness of the pagan theory of representation behind them. They said, this is paganism and it is not to have any part within the church. This is the Cappadocian fathers of, of, the, of the fourth century. And then you get as late as the sixth century and you have Ionis of uh, Philipponus and he uh, specifically in his, in his argument in the Diafascio Mundi, I'm sorry, I'm brutalizing this, um, written between 529 and 543, he still considered the symbolic theory of images a pagan characteristic that was to be absolutely condemned. No statues, no artwork, nothing, nothing. So when you're looking at this and you're going, oh, wait a moment, uh, then where did the Catholic Church start adding this in? Like, wh wh what happened? What happened to the orthodoxy of the Catholic Church? They rejected almost 600 years of tradition, 543 years to be exact, of church tradition. Remember, this is the argument that the Catholics make. Oh, we follow church tradition. No, you don't. I just proved it in one point, and now I'm proving it in another point right here that this is the misleading deception that is there. They, in almost 787, that's, that's the year actually, at the Second Nicaea Council, this is where pagan icons got introduced. And I wanna, I wanna read you some of the stuff that, that is, is absolutely frightening for this in, in a moment. Um, we are looking at some of the, some of the writings and I'm, I'm gonna get these straight from the Synod from that uh, Nicaea Council. I want you to understand it. This is something that they, they put down, okay? And this is what they want you to understand. When I say veneration, okay, of icons, images and statues, 
like Mary, um, the images that they have in the Catholic Church, these things. This is what they wrote about it from this council in 787. We decree that these images are to be reverenced. That is, uh, salutations are to be offered to them. The reason for using the word is that it has a twofold significance. It means in the old Greek tongue, it signifies both to salute and to kiss. And the preposition gives it the additional idea of strong desire toward the object, which the last word implies salutation and strong love. For that, one love we also reverence, and that he who reverence, he greatly loves. At the everyday custom which we observe toward those we love, bear witness, and in both ideas and practically illustrated when two friends meet together. So they are taking what is a friendship of loving one another. They're saying that you need to apply this to the statue, to the statues, to the artwork. And this is from the Synod of, uh, on page 572, okay? What they are saying is that you're to love these images, these craven images. You're to kiss them. You're to have affection for them. This is a form of worship. And this is despicable, okay? This is what they're describing as veneration. Now, I want you to, to, to read one more thing to you because this is going to blow you away. At this 787 council, the second council of Nicaea, they clarified that those who do not are athema. And I'm going to give you what their definition of athema. Those who have been condemned from the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and assigned their place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So they're saying that this is what they mean by anathema, okay? And this is from page uh, 564 of the Synod, okay? They're describing this as a place that we would describe as, as Christians as hell, right? As hell. Mm -hmm. And this is what they wrote. Those who do not so hold, let them be anathema. Those who do not think thus, let them be driven far away from the church. For we follow the most ancient legislation of the Catholic Church, which they don't. They ignored the first 500 years. So they're lying here when they say this, okay? They're following ancient paganism, not the church fathers, okay? Let that be understood. We keep the laws of the fathers. No, you don't. You're lying. That's a lie right there. We anathemize those who add anything, who add anything to or take away from the Catholic Church. We anathemize the introduced novelty of the revilers of Christian iconoclasts, those who oppose the icons, okay? We salute the venerable images. They're saying we salute them. We place under anathema those who do not do this. So I owe you and I are anathema. We're condemned to hell according to the Catholic Church, okay? Yeah. Anathema to them who presume to apply to the venerable images the things said in the Holy Scripture about idols. So if you apply the scripture to these to these images and icons, you're anathema. You're anathema. Anathema to those who do not salute the holy and venerable images. Anathema to those who call the sacred images idols. So you and I call them idols. I guess we're condemned to hell. I, I anathema to those who say that the Christians resort to the sacred images as to gods. They do, because they pray to Mary, right? You don't pray to anyone but God. If you're praying to Mary, 
and you're praying to the saints and you're praying to the image of the saints and you're kissing the feet of those saints, you're worshiping gods. Whether you want to admit to it or not, you're lying to yourself and you're deceiving yourself. And the Catholics are saying this is anathema. They just, and I described what they believe by veneration. They were telling you it's worship, right? To those who say that any other delivered from us from idols except Christ our God, anathema to those who dare to say that at any time the Catholic Church received idols. And I want to rephrase this. I want, to, I want you to read this phrase one more time. Anathema to those who say that any other delivered us from the idols except Christ our God. Listen to that phrase. This is what they're saying. Anathema to those who say that any other delivered us from idols except Christ our God. They're telling you that anathema to those who are saying that only Christ delivered us, not these idols. Anathema. So we believe that only Christ delivered us. Only Christ. And according to the Catholic Church, according to the Second Council of Nicaea at 787 AD, we are anathema. Because we do not venerate the icons, the images, the pictures. We do not. And this is what's called veneration. Um, and this is bad. This is really bad stuff. And uh, I, I wanted to share this with you because it contradicted almost 600 years, 400 years exactly, but you had some church fathers in, in, in 547 arguing this. You had this entire contradiction of the early church fathers that said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And the Catholic church then came and said, we're doing it. We're going against the church fathers. We're going against the orthodoxy. And we're venerating these icons and images. I hope you understand why this is absolutely satanic and evil. And um, you, you have no leg to stand on if you want to argue with me on this. Because I'm not quoting Stefan Terraway here. I'm quoting right out of the Second Nicaea Council. I'm quoting right from the Synod themselves. I'm even giving you the page numbers of it that this is written on. And I want you to understand something. I want to give you a little scripture, and then I'm going to let you go with the rest of it. Um, we have a few yeah. minutes. Peter, in the book of Acts, um, he told the guy, don't, don't worship me. Don't bow down to me. Stand up. I'm just a man. I'm just a servant. And then John in the book of Revelation, he bows before the angel. And the angel goes, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a moment. I'm just a fellow servant. Don't bow to me. People who venerate these things and bow and, and think that Mary is the bestower of grace and it, she's on the same par as Jesus Christ. And, and even though the Catholics will, well, we don't really think that. What you do by your actions you and what you're saying, okay, I'm sorry, it's what I see. You're just deceiving yourself. You are committing a blasphemy. Because you're not applying that that is only to the Lord God Almighty. And uh, I'm going to shut up because I was only got about nine minutes left. So I'm going to give him the rest. <laughs> no, brother, that was, that was great. It's like, wow. Um, just a blast info. And I remember, you know, having this discussion with Brother Stefan uh, concerned. He was just, you know, running with me just some things he learned um, from the book he's been reading and some other sources. I think earlier this week or sometime last week. And you shared that quote to me. And I was just like, like, wow, I've never heard that before. I'm just like, I don't know everything, but that was just completely new to me. Um, and again, straight from those sources, right? It's not something that we wrote. It's not from a blog. It's historical sources that you can find yourself concerning not only how they view veneration of icons, 
but how they view others who make who make the claim that they're worshiping icons, right? They say anathema, anathema so many times there. And it just really surprised me. And I love how you you brought the parts of scripture where we see people worship men. Uh, we see John, you know, bow down to this angel twice in the book of Revelation, by the way, rebuke twice. And they're saying that, wait, no, don't do it. You know, worship should be gone to God alone. Um, so if those are the people in those times or, you know, the angel that time, those living, breathing beings at that time saying, don't bow down to me, a living, breathing being, wouldn't they more so easily say that to a statue of themselves? Wouldn't that angel say, hey, don't bow down to that statue. I'm only, you know, make sure worshiping God. Hey, don't bow down to me, an apostle of Christ or an image of me. Make sure you're worshiping Christ. Um, so, yeah, so you have to think about those things, guys. And as you were saying anathema, or as you were going through that um, uh, that reading, the quote concerning, you know, anathema to those who say we worship, you know, gods and things like this, uh, it just, basically, they're making the claim that salvation, because if you're damned by saying that they're worshiping idols by venerating them, then essentially what they're implicitly stating is that part of salvation, at least, is worshiping these idols. Because they're saying that, to be damned by them, to be damned for saying it's worship, you have to be saved by worshiping them, right? Um, and that's actually in the beginning there. They actually yeah. say in the beginning there that if you don't do this, anathema. So that means that salvation is is in part, at least in part, dependent on veneration of these idols, based on those quotes that Brother Stefan gave. Um, and my my question that is on what power authority they have to make that claim um and that brings my mind to galatians 1 6 9 um where paul is the one to be the first one to talk about anathema and how you're anathema anathematized if i can use that word and that's only by speaking the wrong gospel right if you have the wrong gospel obviously if you have the wrong gospel you can't you can't obviously be saved right you have to be saved by the only true gospel and if you believe in the wrong gospel or saying the wrong gospel then you're going to be damned. That's the only way, not through worshiping icons or not through saying that, you know, icon veneration is worship and things like that. Um, but Galatians 1, 6 through 9 says, I marvel that you return away so soon from whom called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And essentially this quote they pulled here uh, is a different gospel, right? Because if they're saying that anathema to those who don't worship or venerate these idols, um, anathema to those who say that this is worship or this is idolatry, uh, they're basically giving another gospel here. They're saying that to be saved, at least in part, part of salvation is veneration of this thing. That's a false gospel. That's a different gospel. And Paul says, I marvel that you return away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. So a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be a curse. And that's the word anathema, which they somehow start using left and right to, and just ripped completely out of context concerning what true biblical anathema is. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what you have received, let them be accursed. And again, that word anathema, let them be damned, right? And that damnation isn't based on worshiping idols or, or you know, saying Mary full of grace. It's based on, do you have the correct understanding of Christ, the person of Christ and what he did on the cross? If you don't, salvation or damnation literally hinges on that not on icons and whatever but on your understanding of christ and they totally missed that point 
uh, in that council right there. Yeah, and, and I think that that's important. Um, it, it's important to understand, and I want, I want to bring this up again. You know, we, we keep hearing, we were the protectors of the Orthodox. We were the protectors of the Church Fathers. No, they're the contradictors of the Church Fathers. And we, tonight we talked about two major examples of that that contradicted Church Fathers um, in, in their doctrine. And I think this is important to understand um, because there is a lot of deception there. Look, the view that I think is more correct is the Catholic Church came into being, you know, after the Council of Nicaea, um, when they adopted their first little pope around 500, you know, uh, A.D. And that is when the Catholic Church came into being because, and we're going to talk about this next week, we don't even have time to cover it. That's when the Kingdom Now theology started for the Catholic Church. When they chose to become a state uh, and not a church. And this is where the danger began. Um, it's before that, that it was not, the church was not to be a state. The church was to be a group of people that gathered together an ecclesia, a sacred congregation that gathered together. And somehow that all got corrupted. And the ecclesia was corrupted and it became a kingdom now theology. And we're going to talk about that in depth um, next not the next time we get together, which is next month, not next week, next month. Yeah. Yeah. So, so guys, I mean, we went over a lot just in terms of purgatory and iconography. And again, we could just flesh those out in their own video for, you know, parts one and two and five and then so on and so forth. But, you know, that's what we got for today. And then we just want to, again, bring this up to you guys to make sure you know what these false doctrines are in Catholicism, right? Why? Maybe you might not be a Catholic, just as Brother Stefan pointed out, uh, early in the video, you might be asking yourself, well, why do I care about icons? Why do I care about purgatory? I'm not, I'm not a Catholic. I believe the right stuff in, in, you know, in Christianity and things like that. Why do I care about this? Well, you might have some friends who are Catholics. You might have some family members who are Catholics. Even if you don't, you might meet someone down the line who comes into your sphere of influence in life who believes these things, right? And they, whether you like it or not, may challenge your views, may say, yeah, I know you're a Christian. Well, I'm a Catholic. I believe this and that. Well, how are you going to respond to them? So hopefully through this, we hope to equip you. Uh, we hope to also point these false doctrines out so that you yourselves aren't seduced or deceived by them. So don't let anybody come up to you and say, that, hey, you know, yeah, sure, you might be Protestant. You know, you don't believe in purgatory. But actually, the Book of Maccabees says that. And now hopefully you know that, hey, the Book of Maccabees isn't scripture, isn't canon. So you won't be deceived by that. You'll know what the truth is. Um, so we just want to make sure you guys know these things. And we also want to make sure that, hey, if you are Catholic, definitely look into these things yourself. Definitely take up everything we've said. Look into scripture. Don't, don't have your source of truth be traditions and the church fathers. Uh, yeah, church fathers, they say some, you know, we can look back in their writings, see what they thought. They'd be great sources of understanding. It's a deeper understanding of uh, scripture and history at that time. Uh, but they're not on the same level as God's word, right? So we don't want to misplace that. We want to make sure we have things in order here. Um, so we just hope to encourage you guys with these things. Yep, I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Well, that's it for tonight. We have like 30 seconds left and I just want to say thank you for joining us. Don't forget to listen to this on the podcast uh, if you missed any of it. And uh, God bless you and we'll see you next week. God bless. Have a great night, guys.